You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. I'm really looking forward to talking to our guests because I'm a very big fan of the series they worked on, Ted Lasso. In a world of sarcasm, cynicism, anti-heroes, and dark comedies, Ted Lasso distinguishes itself with a relentless positivity and hope, while not passing up any laughs along the way. It's the story of an American navigating his way through UK football culture. It's a fairly standard fish-out-of-water story that goes in very unexpected directions. Solid entrance. What would you rather be, a lion or a panda? I don't have time for this. Okay. Gotta go panda. Are you mad? Pandas are fat and lazy and have piss-stained fur. Lions are powerful and majestic and rule the jungle. Try telling that to an elephant. Ooh, can I be an elephant? Mm-mm, lion or panda? Panda. Lion! What's black and white and red all over? I don't know what. A panda that gets anywhere near a lion. The answer is lion. All right. Hey, Jamie, what would you rather be? A lion or a panda? Coach, I'm me. Why would I want to be anything else? I'm not sure you realize how psychologically healthy that actually is. Mm. Cheers. Joining us today are Bernard Weiser and Brent Finley, the co-supervising sound editors on Ted Lasso. You'll know Bernard from his Emmy-nominated work on Deadwood the Movie and True Detective. He also has 19 Golden Reel nominations for his work on TV series and films, including American Hustle, Hurt Locker, Spider-Man 3. Welcome to the show, Bernard. How are you today? Good, very good. Thank you. Thanks for having us. No problem. Did you work on both season one and two of Ted Lasso? Yes, along with Brett, yes. Excellent. Also joining us is Brent Finley. His previous accolades include five Golden Reel nominations of sound editing on projects such as NBC's The Good Place and the Grammy winning docuseries The Defiant Ones. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hi, Timothy. Thanks for having me. This is great. Have you worked with Bernard previously to Ted Lasso? I don't, we know. I don't remember Bernard. I mean, that was like so last <laughs> week. <No. laughs> what? Um, yeah, we, we know each other from circles. Did we actually do anything, Bernard, before this? We were both on American Hustle, in fact. Yep. But we. what's interesting is sometimes situations arise where you don't know who else is on the crew. We just kind of swoop in, do our thing, and sometimes it's politics, sometimes it's just the way the comfort zone is for the powers that be. American Hustle is a perfect example. We were in, in the same building, circling around the stage, and uh, never saw each other. <laughs> what a wonderful business we're in, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how nose to the grindstone that one was. <laughs> so let's talk about Ted Lasso. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, it's a kind of disarming in its positivity. Since maybe The Sopranos, a lot of popular entertainment has taken a dark turn, and that's been kind of the dominant force. And Ted Lasso is a character who is good from the beginning and is good at the end. A lot of series take good people and break them bad, as in obviously the show Breaking Bad, or as in the case of uh, The Good Place, a bad person that breaks good over time, where Ted Lasso is kind of just always good and he's trying to bring everybody onto his train. Is there anything in the sound that you guys used to try and reinforce this positivity and uh, lack of cynicism, maybe? Sound always follows the storyline and being true to the storyline. So what we can do to help uh, uh, push the story forward. 
my side of this is very much on the dialogue side, the main dialogue editor for it. And it's picking out the right mics, making sure that you understand what's being said. Then it becomes a collaboration as well. So one of the great things working with Brent is is the ability to collaborate and see things the same way. And uh, so it might be sliding some dialogue to, to making sure the storyline is hitting and moving along but dialogue isn't standing on top of each other. We have an ensemble cast. Oftentimes we have scenes where lots of main characters are talking, sometimes at the same time. But that doesn't help the story. If there's important dialogue, it has to be centered. So picking the right mic, seeing if it needs to be ADR. I mean, these are a lot of logistics, but it all centers around story. And that's so important. And that means understanding the characters. And this is Sometimes people don't quite get how important we need to know what the arc, the character arc is to be able to do that, to be able to make those decisions. Because, come on, at the end of the day, it's all about decisions. And to that point, as, as far as like when to ADR things, production is focused on the principal dialogue and capturing that. So a lot of what goes on in the locker room and out in the field and on the sidelines and the press boxes is not recorded on the day because they've got to get the principals. So to that point of understanding what the story arc is and where they're going drives our choices like in Loop Group. Ted has these euphemisms and interesting turns of phrase. How does this group of Brits react to something? They're, is something he said supposed to be funny? Are they supposed to get it? Uh, you know, it's a reference they don't get. And so a lot of it is, is keeping a positive response. Initially, in the first couple episodes, they weren't warm to that. It was a little more critical, that response of like, what is, huh? Like, what? What's he talking about? And now, as then as that first season went along, we turned that to be more warmer, of more receptive to the ideas of, we don't necessarily get it. Let's wait for him to explain it. Oh, that's cool. Got it. Okay, that's funny. You know, so it became more positive uh, interactions as they warmed up to him. And so in the sense of, you know, it's not so much the soundscape, but it is how the people that he's interacting with receive his positivity. Obviously, Roy Kent can't handle it, (laughs) Mr. Grumpy Pants. Um, That whole interaction is fun. And another thing that we intentionally do, we have full control, right? So everything's on purpose. So you'll notice the timing between the score, uh, even if it's a needle drop song, and door opens and closes. Is this a dramatic entrance or exit, or is it just a normal entrance or exit? And so we really work on timing and synchronizing those events to, to make those statements. If it's just a, somebody's leaving the room, big deal, we won't synchronize the music and the beat and the cut to the frame. Um, but if Roy in season one is going to go strangle Jamie Tart and he walks out of the clubhouse and that is a synchronized door poof right on the cut and with the music and it's very intentional to, to hit that beat. And we do that several times in season one and in season two. It's, um, it's pretty cool way to not only visually cut the transition the scene but to also sonically you know move to a new place you mentioned that over time other characters in the show's reactions to ted lasso changes there's also an element that i can imagine being just a hair pulling experience uh the crowds in the soccer games change in their affection to the team as the series progresses at the beginning the crowds lost hope in the team And as the series goes on, the crowd starts getting more and more behind the team and less cynical towards the team, I guess. Especially, I'm assuming a lot of this was done in the COVID world. How did you tackle the crowds and that kind of range of emotions of the crowds? Because anyone who's cut crowds knows that 
it's hard because a giant stadium crowd just becomes a wash of noise. So making definition out of that is really difficult. One thing for sure is you just hit on one of the biggest challenges for season one. We were still trying to figure it all out. Now we were totally remote. Everything was going to be remote, working from home. So working through the challenges of collaboration, where you can't just walk down the hall and discuss things as you're going through it. This is something that took the group of us, which were a small group, with our experience to kind of put together, communicate well, uh, either texting or telephone calls, sometimes just sitting in on watching it at the same time as we talk about it. Brent went through a whole evolution of figuring out with your group and those crowds how to put it all together to make a 50,000-person stadium all chanting at the same time, but recording the ADR, the group ADR, individually from home. Wow. Quite a challenge. And uh, it took all of us to kind of chime in in our different areas to make it fit. But uh, Brett led us all the way through that. I'll let you take it, Brett. But uh, he's very modest about this. But uh, I think he he was a, a definitely leader in figuring out how we were going to do that. Thanks, Bernard. I, I do have to say that um, the contagious lasso positivity is the thing that allowed us to even attempt this under lockdown. Because we had the, the first two episodes, we had gone through traditionally, quote unquote, the old old fashioned way pre COVID. <laughs> so that's the first two episodes of season one of season one. Yeah. Episode one and three, we did two out of order just as that happens. But so episode one and three, we were still working on three when it happened, when we had to lock down, we hadn't finished it yet. But we had built our rapport with Jason and Brendan and the other and Joe Kelly and the other creators on the show in person and kind of get the hang of that communication. So Fortunately, we got to do that in person and establish that. So when we all went remote, we could relate to who we were talking to. We could picture having a conversation with them. So it was good that we had that under our belt. So when it came time to fill out these stadiums and make these chants intelligible and then take that trip of the emotion the crowd has to go through, we couldn't get a bunch of people in a room. We couldn't rent uh, the local high school field and fill the bleachers with people and get them to shout. And in production on on the day, a lot of those live performances are blanketed with direction from the director with a bullhorn. So not every complete phrase is even usable because they're calling out, shouting, you know, more, more, okay, you know, giving them direction because it's for the visuals that they're going for. Another interesting challenge that we had in the stadium chants probably anybody experienced has been in a stadium that big, trying to be in unison is a slower chant than our hooligans in the pub. So when we go from, you know, wanker, wanker out in the crowd, out in the stands, it's a slower wanker. And then we cut to the pub and they're wanker, wanker. You know, they're just, I mean, that's a little exaggerated. The Jamie Tart song, uh, wanker, the Roy Kent chants, all of those we experienced that, as much as the picture editors tried to cut those continuously, the idea was that as we went from the stadium into the pub, back to the stadium, it was a continuous chant. We didn't feel a hitch in the get-along because of that speed. So we had to you know, compromise a little bit where we had to speed up the stadium a little bit and slow down the pub a little bit, but not so much that it was necessarily, you know, well, I mean, we couldn't do it to the point where it was obvious and causing a problem. It was more about, um, in kind of like talking about door opens and closes and sync with the music, I would rather cheat visual sync, be off a little bit about visual sync, but musically it feels good. You know, something can be in visual sync 
and it doesn't bother you. But as soon as you get it into musical sync, it just takes it to the next level. You might not even realize that that, that would happen until you do it. And you're like, Great, that's what we need. Let's let it be out of sync a little bit visually. The show is not about the concrete nature of what we're seeing. It's how it makes you feel. That's the essence of the show. Part of that is making sure the sound helps you feel something. So the journey of the crowd, they start out, they're very pessimistic, don't have hope. And that's kind of what gets us in the first season. And the final episode is named, it's the hope that kills you. <laughs> because darn it all, if Ted didn't get people's hopes up. <laughs> you know? So then it's just silence at the end uh, from the crowd. They're just devastated because as much as they promised themselves they wouldn't get their hopes up, they actually did. So that journey was a combination of many, many layers. So we have library crowds, a couple thousand people, 10,000 people, 20,000, 30,000 people in basic effects libraries that are available to anybody. But sometimes those crowds are unintelligible. So how do we get 30,000 people to say wanker or sing the Jamie Tart song? That doesn't exist in a library. <laughs> uh, so part of it was a stadium is just going to have a natural roar that's there all the time, whether people are participating in a chant or not. Taking loop group, uh, we only had uh, six members in our loop group, layer upon layer, and having them play different characters. And just, you know, you can imagine we're doing this uh, over Zoom. Everybody's recording on their own end. Production had, I think, maybe like up to 200 people chanting it. But then, like I said, there's bullhorns and stuff in there. But we had the pacing. So we had a reference from what that crowd was doing as our, core, as our reference for loop group to go from. So we would just mute the Zoom, play that loop so they get the pacing of it then mute it. So <laughs> the lag, it's really hard to sing in unison with the, with the lag and this kind of a thing. So everyone would get that pace in their heads and we'd mute the Zoom and I would, I'd go for like a minute and just hit stop and hope, hope we got something usable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, the actors would send me their files and I'd assemble them and, and do a pre-dub mix. Um, and Honestly, it creates some of the best sounding loop group out there is because they have individual control over every voice. Sometimes loop group, a voice will stand out or a laugh will stick out. And this gave me the opportunity to just to duck all those and, or feature if I wanted to in that pre-dub process before baking it in. To be true, I did deliver to the mix stage uh, the files as if they came from an ADR stage. I, didn't, I wasn't going to ask our re-recording mixer to try to mix 128 tracks of loop group. That's the most expensive place to make loop group work. You're familiar with Envy. Cargo Cult. Uh, the plugin Envy from Cargo Cult. I rack my brain to how can I impose the loop group used the production as reference, but the production as reference was too too in a wash and too noisy to use as something to use, you know, for imposing on another effect. So Envy was it was great from taking loop group as the source, you know, messing around with all the dials. And imposing that onto the library layers, imposing that on 2,500 people, imposing that on 10,000 people. So it takes kind of the sound envelope of the loop group's dynamics. Exactly. And imposes it on kind of the wash of a larger crowd. Yes, exactly. So I start with a wash crowd, just a steady cheer. And it, I can't make the crowds actually say wanker. Of course. I mean, that's not, Envy is great, but it doesn't, can't do that. <laughs> but what it can do is it can do the dynamics envelope. So wah, 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 wah of, of wanker. You know, you hear that. Wanker, 
plus it can do pitch. And so it can compose. So as the, you know, Jamie Tart song, we can get them to pitch up and down in the Jamie Tart song. There's a special player on it. And you have to wonder, where would Richmond be without him? And some components, you know, it's a messing with the dial, depending on what the chant is. Some stuff helped and some stuff didn't help. But it's, it's one of those season to taste kinds of things. The loop group was the core layer and then it had multiple layers of different densities. And what we found was just playing the lesser densities, like the 2,500 people, was more intelligible to sell that as the whole stadium was singing that. So the 30,000-person crowd just kind of made mud. So we just have a wa- just this background wash of everybody and then a smaller uh, group of stadium people pulsing to that, uh, to that NV calculation underneath the loop group. And then what parts of the production I could use, we did use too. So the other thing about crowds that's really hard to cut, I promise we won't talk about crowds for this entire conversation, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, when someone's about to score a goal, the crowd cheers on the first pass, they cheer on the second pass, and then they cheer again on the goal. That's how you want it in a TV show. But in real life, it's just one loud, long cheer. You don't feel those dynamics. So how did you go about finding individual smaller cheers to build up the pace when like, there's multiple events in a row? You touch on something that Jason was very keen on making sure we did translate, and that was that each of these moments was a little separate story. So we did want to drive, you know, that's a good burn. You know, that was a good tackle. But there's a play right, coming right after it. You know, we want to hear these pulses deciding which pulses are more important. You know, maybe one in the middle is a neat little trick, but it's not that big of a deal. So it makes room for us to go bigger on the next one. You know, and it's just having really good library material. I can't stress enough. Don't cheap out on or short yourself on library material. You know, seek out and try out and go for adding to that library to get good recordings that are, you know, licensable and easy and good to use. Have That, that source material is everything. I think one thing that was nice about this is the uh, production recordist was very good at, even in, in action sequences, is throwing some mics out there and picking up on little tidbits of production that helped define those little moments. It didn't work all the time, but more often than not, there, there was little tidbits that helped to build upon and helped give those dynamics up and down. There's nothing like real production to just make everything flow and that glue to put it all together. The cool thing is that, you know, just listening to the dailies and going through the sound rolls, which I encourage anybody to do, there's gold in there. Our team members are actually football players and they're out there playing and they're yelling and those shouts on the field, uh, we can get that uh, liveliness. And fortunately, in some sense, there wasn't a big crowd there because like, we can isolate a lot of those recordings and get the shouts on the field. And then doing remote ADR in that world, like where I need Sam to yell, Jamie, I'm open. I'm open, Jamie. Um, actually, had him go out in his backyard and do it. It's hard enough to do an exterior shout in an ADR stage. How, you know, forget your walk-in closet. So <laughs> basically worldizing it the first time around. Just have him, we tried different things. And we set the phone down on a picnic table and walked 20 yards away and yelled. You know, just played with different things to get it most of the way there. Yeah, those little things helped because we could do those shouts. We could dip the crowd and then play up those on-field sounds because we we tried to establish uh, a little different world at the level of the pitch. Out on the pitch is a little different from those, you know, mid-stadium and above views. I hope a lot of people, if anybody can experience this in Atmos because the Atmos mix is just a whole other level where the, the roar and the crush of the thousands of people in the stadium 
is up high when we're down on the pitch. Like we can feel that elevation down on the pitch. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to feel that. That's really cool. So we've talked a lot about the soccer scenes, but the interesting thing about Ted Lasso, uh, for a series that's all about football, that's actually a small element of the show. Like much more of the show takes place in the locker room and uh, in the office spaces and stuff within the building. What catches you isn't the, isn't the comedy, it isn't the football, it's the characters. It's the depth of the character. And at first you discover a little bit of depth and then it's a little bit more and then it's more characters and they're deeper and more involved. And that's the success of Ted Lasso is this interaction of these very different people that we relate to. And it's all across the board. Not only are the characters warming up to Ted Lasso, so is the audience. You see the first episode and you meet Ted Lasso and, and he's like this wacko guy and you, you make this assumption, at least I certainly did when I first saw the first episode, that this is going to be kind of a little of a screwball comedy type of thing and the joke is football and there you go. And you get into it and all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, these characters have a little bit more behind them. And this is what makes it so relatable all the way through. And this continues into season two. And it just, it's a constant evolution. And this idea and the concept that we translate into sound comes all the way down from Jason all the way through. You are the first crew that I've talked to that's done two seasons of a show since COVID started. I was wondering if you could talk to me kind of about the differences between your first round in COVID and your second round, because I'm assuming things were uh, a little more open and available in season two. Uh, Bernard, do you want to tackle that? Actually, it was pretty much the same. We kept on the same track in the way we, we performed. You know, things have been opening up. The studios in general have been very conservative to their, for our safety. So they've kept it uh, locked down pretty much. They started to open up, of course, during this season, but we kept working remotely for the safety of everybody. And we got a, a system working quite well, so that it didn't pose any problems. Season two's ADR, was that all done with the actors in their homes? Uh, no. The interesting thing was watching the major studios, then the independent studios like ADR stages around the world, agree on and develop these COVID protocols for safety and getting everyone on board with um, testing cycles and uh, time in between every actor to clean ADR stages and let the air change out in the room, sanitize everything. So watching that evolve when back in season one, I, I feel like independently we were much more nimble than that because we, we could, it was on an individual basis where the actor's at home and we could do an ADR session literally any time. We, it was not a scheduling problem. <laughs> and half of them were like, hey, I'm not doing anything. I can't, I can't go anywhere. Sure, let's do this. But what we found is using the remote collaboration tools in that way, we've done a hybrid now. These ADR stages are open. But in the past, in the old school way, I would go to an ADR stage on my end, connect via Source Connect, and participate in the ADR session remotely from ADR stage to ADR stage. What we've seen now, and I appreciate this, is that I, I can actually do my side of that wherever I'm at. I don't have to coordinate the schedules of two separate ADR stages. I appreciate what we've developed in the sense that it's okay to direct remotely. As long as we can see each other, we have iPads, we still have this communication, and we can tell if somebody rolls their eyes or not. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, Because without the cameras, what we find is uh, sometimes I'll just be taking notes between a take and the actor gets self-conscious because they think I hated what they just did. Yes, for sure. When I'm really writing down, oh, that was great. I want to use the head. I'm making a note about this. 
So having um, having the camera on really helps that to say, you know, they can see that I'm smiling about it, or I, I went, oh yeah, or great, you know, I can give them a thumbs up without interrupting the take or something. So now we've, I think we've settled on this this hybrid where I can do four or five ADR sessions in the period of time I could only do maybe two when I had to go from stage to stage or we had to schedule stages. So it's become much more efficient. The hardest part now is coordinating time zones. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I can, yeah, let's, we can do that time. Oh, no, wait, I have another session because of time zones and doing the math to get them to work. But Well, you're in LA, correct? You two are both based in LA, right? Yes, we're LA based, although I'm in Michigan at the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. The majority of the actors would be UK based. So there's obviously a big time zone issue there. So which one of you two got to do the 3 a.m. sessions? Brett had some earlier mornings than I did, but this is, we're used to this. This happens. I have another film next week. I'll be doing recording sessions with Tokyo. So Ooh, Tokyo, there you go. Uh, ADR sessions at any time you can imagine is part of our life. So, <laughs> well, the cool part is. Yeah, we could do the, the 4 a.m. ADR session and go back to bed. Yeah, from home. Whereas if pre-COVID, it was just understood that I would drive into the studio. I have to be make myself presentable and have enough coffee and be on at quarter to four for that downbeat at four o'clock. And then drive home or just decide to stay there, And depending on when the next session is. You know, I could stay in my pajamas for an ADR session. I'm not mad about that. One thing that's happened with all of this is that the uh, the tools we use to allow this type of uh, connection has become more stable, has evolved. The pandemic helped these companies push them a little bit more for obvious competitive reasons to get their software to be more stable. And we will use two, sometimes three of them at the same time to make sure that uh, any one connection is clean, secure, and recording properly. This is a benefit that's happened because of the pandemic and, and what we've gone through. Any of the productions that have gone through this pandemic, Ted Lasso being a key one, I think, has helped develop this new way of working and now causing a hybrid way of working that has a lot of great efficiencies, as Brent just outlined. So one of the hybrids that we have discovered that works well, um, we've got two ways to do loop group. One is everybody's at home still in their walk-in closets or booths in their house, which over the last year, we've really raised the bar on the quality of that. And all of the, the Loop Group voice talent have really stepped up and they're their own little pseudo engineering, self-supporting, and they support each other. You know, they make sure a lot of them all, what equipment are you using? So they all have the same equipment and they can just ask each other for help. We get their walk-in closet sounding great. Uh, it works pretty good. Sometimes we still have to wait for the trash truck, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> they uh, are in a house. There's a couple ways to do it. They could record on their end. And this is the way we did it initially under lockdown. Send me the files, and then I do a pre-dub and come up with a mix track. Uh, but that could take two or three days or two or three times the length of the actual group session to come up with something that I could send to the mix stage. So it's not. It's certainly not efficient, but if that's, that's what we got to do, that's, that's why we did it before. So the hybrid we have now... Bernard talked about the evolution of some of these tools, and that is uh, clean feed. We really kind of came out of the box and pushed them. I think we were using it in a way they didn't necessarily think that it was going to be used. So they've really gone full bore and got the quality up and the stability up to where I can have those loopers. They're still in their walk-in closets, but they're using clean feed dialed into a studio directly to studio with Pro Tools, with faders. So for me as the program director in a way, or the director of the, of, the, of the voices, I'm hearing the mix. So they're sending me the mix of this instead of individual voices, so the rec and they can record a mix track, 
plus they can record those isolation tracks, those individual tracks. So in one move, that hybrid is now changed from the mix track's ready to go, but if I still want to change that balance, I've got the ISOs if I wanted to rebounce something, and I really try hard to not have to do that. <laughs> it's more efficient to just do another take sometimes if I thought somebody was out of balance. And we can talk about that. I say, oh, you know, could you back the guys off or could I have a ladies only because the guys are so strong on that one and then just mix, put them together. So the other option that we're seeing is um, there's a studio in Burbank that has individual vocal booths in the same building and the loopers can go there in person with pro gear, isolated rooms, sound treated rooms, right into the mixing board. I'm participating over clean feed just for the audio feed so I hear them in full quality but it's being recorded locally there and everybody's just in their own ISO booth instead of being in the same room together and everybody feels safe and when they go out to the kitchen for a snack they put their masks on so that's like this this hybrid thing of where some of us can be remote what I appreciate we're still involving the pro studios the pro engineers the ADR mixers who you know know their stuff and can head off problems you know because by the time I'm two days into putting these ISOs together the old way stuff had been going on. I didn't know when somebody's air conditioner came on. So now I'm isotoping individual voices and you know, um, so that takes extra time. So I appreciate getting the pro engineers back in the game. If you take out all the technical problems that recording ADR from home brought on, do you think that the performances were better because they were in a environment that they were comfortable in instead of in a more clinical environment like a studio maybe? No, actually. <laughs> I think sometimes it's hard enough in, a, in an ADR stage to pretend you're outside on a football field. Uh, but now that put yourself in your walk-in closet where it's dim and it's dark and they think they're emoting or they think they're being an extrovert and it's really throttled back. So it was almost the other way of, you know, you don't normally shout in your house, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and actors would be like, hold on, I got to go tell my neighbors not to call the police. Hold on, because <laughs> I'm about to go get all crazy. Bernard, did you have any thoughts on that? For the performers, for the actors, it's uh, getting them back into the space they were during production. It's that feel for them. And I think the process of uh, them warming up to do their recordings is a little bit different. It's skewed. I mean, we spend time... We get to know the the talent in a way we can almost predict which take is going to... Which set it takes, how far in do you have to go when they hit their prime. You know, some people, they, they start and the take two are going to be always the good ones. And if you go to five and six, starts falling off. Others, the first four takes are all warm-ups, and then it's five, six that they get into their prime. And you can almost predict this depending on, on uh, the way they perform. However, it's a whole different set. It's a different way of doing that when they're recording from home. And I think what Brett is saying, the environment just changes how long and the process that they need to go through to get into that zone where we have something we can work with. But they all get there. They're all professionals. They know where the goal is. It's just the process changes. And therefore, our communication has to change a little bit. I think one, one of the things that the remote collaboration has opened up is more communication among departments that wouldn't necessarily interact as intimately when uh, we were doing things in another way. I'm daily connecting with assistant picture editors and picture editors, slacking notes back. I think we'll always keep this communication up. And I've had more collaboration with our music editor, Richard Brown, on this show than I think I have with any other music editor, any other show in the past. I like to think I work well with music editors, but this is a whole other level where we're messaging each other almost every day of what's happening here, what's going on here. I'll bounce something out, send it to him so he can hear what the crowd is doing. 
he'll send something to me. So, oh, this piece of the score was rewritten. Here's the key we're in now, because maybe my sound design, we want to play with it or against it in, in key, you know? So this, this back and forth has just been uh, amazing. And I think it has elevated the product and we can hear that. So instead of getting to the mix stage and having to pick one, we're out of time to redesign, make it work together. So we just have to pick one and music invariably wins in that case we're bringing it to the stage already playing well together, especially when we have characters like Rebecca, who she sings. That's an intimate collaboration between music and dialogue editing. So it's production dialogue. There's production crowd baked in. So Bernard is editing, Rebecca's singing, and we're sending that to Richard, who's working on the backing track for timing and stuff. So it's been that collaboration. I just, I love it. I hope we can keep that going no matter what happens with uh, our lockdown situation. Ted Lasso is about collaboration, in fact. I mean, it's part of the storyline. And it's my example of how when you have good communication and you collaborate, good things happen. Look at for us, we have an Emmy nomination. Um, and it's a hit show. It, it just prevails throughout everything, the importance of, of good collaboration. We've always had the attitude that, yeah, the pandemic is there, but we're not going to allow that to be an excuse for any less quality of in any way, shape, or form. That's been our motto all the way through. It's just another challenge to get through, but we know where we have to get. Pandemic or no pandemic, doesn't matter. The goal and where we had to get to is still the same. And this is something that uh, we've talked about and the whole crew has always been on board with. And like I say, collaboration, good attitude, good sense of humor always, and good things happen. Ted Lasso is the perfect example of that. Are you two finished working on season two or is it still going? Only three episodes have aired at the time of this interview. Editorial is, is, is pretty much finished, yeah. Yeah, we're on the mix stage today with the final episode of the season for just its, its general mix, but we're still touching up several of the last few episodes. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, season two plays out. Thank you very much for talking with me today. You guys were great guests. I hope we can have you on again in the future. Our pleasure. Fantastic. Appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro-audio-related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Immersive Audio Podcast, a podcast that explores all things immersive audio. We talk to thought leaders covering the art, science, and business of this fast-changing industry. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app. Hi, everyone. This is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website, www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. 
See you there.